Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to share a few things about this podcast with you. This is an independent one woman production, which means I depend on you, the listeners, to help keep us going and growing. There are a few simple things that you can do to help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever apps that you listen to your shows on. You can recommend the show in true crime fan groups and discussion groups. You can join our discussion group. We got a whole bunch of new members this week. So to all of you that joined, thank you and welcome. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like to do a little bit more to help out, you can go over to our Patreon page by searching California Dreaming. And you'll also be able to find the link in the show notes. Check out the exclusive bonuses that you can access starting at only $1 a month. And if a subscription isn't your thing, but you would still like to help, you can make a donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. I also need to provide you with this warning. These episodes may contain graphic details, including gun violence, sexual violence, sexual abuse, and strong language, and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Sources for the story include the book All She Wanted, She Slash He Wanted by Aphrodite Jones, as well as numerous online articles and documents that will all be listed in the show notes. Okay, let's get started with this brand new episode of this series. If you are listening to this and you have not listened to part one, you might want to pause this episode here, go back, take a listen to episode 227, then return to this and you'll be all caught up. We left off in part one with Brandon having finished up his freshman year at Pius X High School along with his BFF, Sarah Gap. They also had a third friend and her name was Erin Gallagher. Brandon began his sophomore year in the fall of 1988. During the summer, he had landed a job flipping burgers at McDonald's, but he really hated working there, but he liked having a little pocket money. At the same time, Brandon was also able to put a little bit of money aside from each paycheck because he wanted to save because he was looking to move out of his mother's house. Joanne... His mom had started dating a guy named Mike and he had moved in and there was just a lot of fighting going on between them and Brandon was just over it. He had an offer to move in with a friend named Tracy Beals, which he took her up on. Joanne knew that the tension in the home bothered Brandon, so she understood why he wanted to put some distance between them. Brandon's sister Tammy had also moved out, but she ended up having somewhat of a pretty abusive relationship of her own. And it was deeply troubling for Brandon to know that these assholes are mistreating his mom and his sister, and there really wasn't anything that he could do to help either one of them. So his answer was to just go off and live elsewhere, away from the chaos. Luckily for Brandon, Tracy's mom was willing to let him stay there at their home. Tracy was in the 11th grade while Brandon, Sarah, and Aaron were in the 10th grade. You know, sometimes in friend groups like this, they don't always like each other. 
And Sarah and Aaron weren't all that fond of Tracy because it felt like Tracy was always trying to manipulate all of Brandon's time. And she really wanted Brandon's friendship to herself, Tracy that is. And Tracy kind of kept Brandon around, sort of by bullying him into hanging out with her more than his other friends. Tracy was very domineering and was also apparently physical with him too. But Brandon had developed feelings for Tracy. So he kind of just went along with whatever she wanted. In fact, Brandon had become so close with Tracy that he even created a memory book full of pictures and mementos of the time that they spent together and the places that they went. Brandon also began calling himself Tina Brandon Beals. Brandon and Tracy even traveled together, taking vacations and road trips, which seems like a lot to be doing for these 15 and 16 year olds, right? They traveled around the Midwest, all over Nebraska, into South Dakota, they visited Mount Rushmore and the Badlands. They took pics wherever they went and visited, and Brandon kept everything in his memory book. At the time, Brandon was still unsure of himself. He loved all of the attention that he got from Tracy, but he still had crushes on boys too at the same time. He just wasn't quite sure yet. But he was certain about one thing that he was different than all of his female friends. He knew that he couldn't walk or talk or act like any of them. And there certainly weren't any females anywhere on TV or in the media that Brandon could look to and feel any kind of relatability. He was different and it was confusing and oftentimes it left Brandon feeling hopeless and just really mixed up. And there were times when Brandon felt as though that he wished that he was never born. And then Brandon's breasts started growing in. And that caused him a great deal of discomfort and he couldn't stand it. He was comfortable in his own skin before puberty started changing everything. And there wasn't anything about him that was girly, nothing delicate or dainty. And then now he has breasts. It was very upsetting and uncomfortable, and if he ever caught anyone looking at them, he just felt really disgusted about himself. Brandon wanted nothing to do with being a female, but that's what was going on with him on the outside. His body was changing. Everything inside of him had him feeling as though there was something seriously wrong with him, and there wasn't anything that he could do to stop his body from filling out the way that it was as he got into his mid-teens. He worried about what his friends would think, what his mom and his sister would think. This burden that he carried with him was heavy. The guilt of it all also weighed on him because he thought that if he confided in his family or friends, that they would be embarrassed and ashamed of him. He didn't want to bring that kind of shame to his family, especially when there was this thing going on with him that he himself couldn't even understand or identify. He had no idea who he was. He didn't know who he was going to be, or what, for that matter. And at the time, in the late 80s and early 90s, the term transgender was little known, if at all. And while the term can be traced back to the mid-1960s, it really didn't start becoming widely used until the mid to late 90s, when transgender replaced the term transsexual, which had itself replaced the term transvestite. That and take into consideration that this is a very small town with rural folks, it was 
extremely confusing for Brandon at that place and at that time. When it came to school, one of the things that Brandon was dead set on was joining the high school football team. He wanted to be right there front and center. He wanted to be the quarterback. When he told Tammy, his sister, about it, she didn't crack any jokes like she did back when Brandon exclaimed that he wanted to be a priest. She could see that Brandon was serious and she encouraged him to go for it. Nobody ever said that girls can't get out there and play football if they wanted to. And she encouraged Brandon to go and try out. Tammy understood that that was how Brandon rolled. He was always the tough one, always the tomboy. If he ever got hurt, he sucked it up, he toughed it out, he shook it off and carried on, and he never, ever cried. Boys never cry. At least, that's what sometimes they're taught. But they do, and it's okay if they do. Tammy believed in Brandon and was certain that he would make it onto the Pius X football team, but he ended up not going out for the team despite his sister's support and encouragement. Meanwhile, the things between Tracy and Brandon were getting a little more physical, which only caused him to become more and more confused. Tracy was actually quite aggressive, and there were times when she would be all over him. And remember that Tracy knows that at birth, Brandon was assigned the female gender, and he was still going by his given name, Tina, Tracy would jump all over him, hold him down, kiss him on the neck, often leaving multiple hickeys behind. While there were times it was a little overwhelming for Brandon, he would never tell her to stop. They'd often just sort of play around and wrestle. Sometimes Tracy would get a little too rough, but Brandon continued to go along with it because he loved the attention that he was getting from her. And then there came a day when Sarah saw all of these hickeys all over Brandon's neck and she questioned him about it. What was this all about? Who did this? And when Brandon explained that it was Tracy, Sarah was like, WTF, she did that? But Brandon just played it off like he didn't get it. He didn't know why we were just messing around. It was no big deal. But Sarah didn't think it was cool at all. Then, as more time passed, Sarah started seeing other bruises on Brandon that weren't hickeys, particularly on his arms. And she could see that these bruises were shaped like somebody's hands and fingers. And it was very concerning to Sarah because she began to believe that Tracy was being abusive to Brandon. They were living together, and she wasn't exactly sure what the nature of Brandon's relationship was with Tracy what it all meant, but she was worried about Brandon being hurt by Tracy and almost felt this duty to report what she was seeing to authorities. It was baffling because when Brandon first started living with Tracy, Sarah thought it was a good move for him to get away from the chaos that he was dealing with at home with his mom and his sister and their boyfriends. In fact, Sarah used to go to Tracy's to hang out pretty regularly as she was very happy to see that Brandon seemed happy. But then the stuff with the hickeys and the other bruises on Brandon had started and it was upsetting to Sarah. And according to Sarah, their relationship did eventually become full-on abusive. At first, if they fought, Tracy would shove Brandon. Sometimes she would slap him. 
It eventually escalated to her punching Brandon whenever they would get into a fight. It was like this typical cycle of domestic violence. They would fight. Tracy would hit. Tracy would express her remorse. She would say that she was sorry. Brandon would be forgiving. And then eventually it would all happen all over again. Sarah recalled an incident one afternoon when she was hanging out with Brandon and Aaron at McDonald's. Then Tracy entered and saw the three of them. She asked Brandon to come outside to talk to her. But when Brandon returned, he had a huge welt on the side of his face in the shape of a hand. Apparently, Tracy had been expecting Brandon to come home and became infuriated when he failed to show up and she found him at the McDonald's hanging out with his friends. Aaron and Sarah were so angered that Tracy had hit Brandon across the face that they went outside to confront her, but she had already left. They went back inside the restaurant and insisted that Brandon move out of Tracy's house immediately, but Brandon would do no such thing. He would actually blame himself for making Tracy mad. He told them that he was the one who needed to fix himself because all he wanted to do was please her. Brandon wanted to win Tracy's love and affection and apparently was willing to take a beating in order to do so. In the midst of all of this, Brandon still had at least one crush on one cute boy named Brian Van Slyke. They had become pretty good friends, Brian and Brandon, but it didn't seem as though Brian really knew how Brandon felt about him at first. But by the time Brian did become aware of Brandon's crush, they had become too good of friends for him to even really want to go there. But their friendship and Brandon's crush carried all the way into their senior year at Pius X. They had all gotten their driver's licenses and were driving at that time, and both Brian and Brandon had an interest in cars, and they liked racing each other on the streets. But they did start getting into their fair share of trouble, at least Brandon did, who did have his license suspended after getting several tickets and failing to pay those fines. The one thing Brandon really wanted was for Brian to take him to their senior prom. He was really hoping that that would happen, and he even opened up to his mom about it. And he even pictured the both of them wearing tuxedos, which Joanne thought for sure that Brandon would be able to pull it off. But as fate would have it, it would not be. Brian didn't ask. He made a promposal to another girl. To go with him and she accepted as a result brandon was crushed by his senior year brandon had ended whatever it was that he had with tracy and decided to go back to living with his own family before going home to his mom's brandon tried living with his sister and her boyfriend but it ended up being only for a short period of time tammy had started noticing some significant changes in brandon And she kind of felt like Brandon really wasn't the same person that she had known growing up, and it concerned her. Brandon had always been such an excellent student, always earning high marks, but suddenly his grades were dropping, and he expressed little to no interest in getting up and going to class every day. Tammy would be the one who would drive Brandon to school in the mornings, and she even tried watching him and waiting to make sure that he actually went into the school. But Brandon would end up ditching most of the time anyway. He wasn't really listening or having any respect, and it started having a serious impact on his relationship with Tammy. 
especially when Tammy started noticing things at home were beginning to go missing. She was losing cash and articles of clothing, particularly socks, and she found that to be really strange. It was like she didn't really even know Brandon anymore, and there was so much tension in the home. Tammy and Brandon began fighting incessantly about his behavior, his going to school, his grades, his stealing. So finally, Brandon went home to their mom's place. Joanne wasn't as vigilant about everything as Tammy had been. She didn't keep as close of an eye on Brandon, hardly at all even, so he was able to get away with whatever it was he wanted to get away with, and Joanne never really bothered him all that much about anything. Her boyfriend, Mike, was still in the picture, but he wasn't living in Joanne's home anymore, and his mom was also busy with a job that she had at a local shopping center, so between going to work and then going to Mike's, it kept her busy and out of the house and out of Brandon's hair. Brandon was also able to get himself into a real hoopty of a car, but it was a set of wheels and it got him from point A to point B most of the time, which is all Brandon was really concerned with. So as far as Joanne was concerned, she thought everything was going all right for him. He had come back to live with her in October of 1990. The holidays were really nice. Sometimes Brandon would drop his mom off at work and she assumed that he would be heading off to school. Sometimes Brandon would visit his mom at work. Once in a while, he would bring her a gift, a stuffed animal, or some flowers. Joanne really had no idea that there was anything seriously wrong or upsetting going on in Brandon's life. She really had no clue. In the meantime, when Brandon was at home alone or in private, he spent much of his time looking at himself in the mirror, doing things such as patting the crotch of his pants with socks in order to create the illusion of a bulge in order to appear male. The more Brandon was able to pass himself off as a boy, the better it made him feel about himself. Brandon was set to turn 18 that December of 1990. He was in his last year of high school. He was on the older end since his birthday was so late in the year, and those of us, myself included, who are born in December know that feeling. Well, most of us anyway. I do have de a December birthday, and I should have entered kindergarten the year that I was going to turn six. But somehow my parents finagled me into the year that I was going to turn five. I started kindergarten. So I was one of those that graduated from high school six months before I even turned 18. Brandon was already going to be 18 and still in high school for another six months. So when a United States Army recruiter visited Pius X High School, Brandon was very interested. I mean, really interested in joining. Operation Desert Storm, the Gulf War, had begun that August 2nd of 1990. And after visiting with the recruiter, he was all about enlisting. He felt like he could easily blend in. He wouldn't feel weird about himself. He was so excited about the prospect of getting into the army. But when he got the call that he did not pass the written test, he was once again devastated. Now, dreamers, I've read in a couple places that it says that he failed the test. And I think I heard on a podcast about this story that it was because he identified himself as a male when legally he was still considered to be female. And that was 
an automatic fail for him, unfortunately. Joanne, when reflecting back upon that disappointment of not getting into the army, when Brandon got the news and his hopes of getting into the military were completely demolished, he just wasn't really the same after that. There were other things going on following that, but Joanne felt like Brandon had lost all hope once he was told his chances of getting into the army were over. He was set to graduate from high school in about six more months, but he felt as though his life was confusing and directionless. Making things even more difficult was the fact that Brandon's moods were often all over the place. One minute, everything would be all right. The next minute, Brandon would be super happy and excited. And then seemingly in a moment for no reason, he would be gloomy and down in the dumps. Brandon frequently cut his hair to make sure it was never too long, although I have seen pictures of him with a mullet. He started working out a lot. He did some weightlifting in an attempt to try to bulk up his thin frame. He started talking about doing something creative, becoming an artist of some sort. Most of the time, though, Brandon was pretty difficult to figure out. And Joanne, of course, was already out of touch with everything. Brandon's best friend Sarah even had a hard time telling what was up with him. Another thing that Brandon had begun doing in addition to lining the inside of his pants with socks was he began using an elastic bandages wrapped tightly around his body to bind his chest because he was desperate to hide any and all feminine features that he had. Brandon's sister Tammy wasn't hardly coming around at all and really wasn't someone that Brandon could turn to at the time for any help or advice. She had become pregnant sometime in 1990 and made the decision to give the baby up for adoption. The family that the baby was going to be going to was a lesbian couple who resided in San Francisco, California. And Tammy was struggling with this decision, not only with the process of adoption, but the idea of adopting the baby to a gay couple. Tammy really didn't know all that much about it. She didn't ever think she even met a lesbian ever in her life, at least not knowingly, because if she had, she didn't realize it. And for Brandon, he wanted to have a niece or nephew so bad. It was the next best thing to having children himself, which we know he wanted nothing to do with. But he definitely wanted to be an uncle. So it would be another heartbreaking loss for Brandon his sister making the decision to give up the baby. But Tammy was really too wrapped up in her own life and in her own world to ever notice how her life and her decisions, her abusive relationship, her pregnancy, how that all impacted Brandon. Brandon ended up getting a new job at the place where Sarah worked. It was a local all-you-can-eat buffet-style restaurant. But that job was short-lived, not only for Brandon, but also for Sarah, because they both ended up getting fired on the spot for having a food fight. And the timing couldn't have been worse, because shortly after they lost their jobs, Sarah found out that she was also pregnant, and the dad of the baby wanted nothing to do with her or the baby. Brandon wanted to help Sarah. He said that he would come and stay with her and help her and take care of her. 
Sarah didn't think that would work out very well. But Brandon insisted they could do this parenting thing together. He even said that if she wanted to give up the baby, that he would take him or her. Even though Brandon definitely knew that he never wanted to have biological children of his own, there was something in him that was desperate to be a parent. He was certain that he would go to his grave a virgin because the thought of having sex just sounded all wrong to him. Sarah tried telling Brandon that it's only uncomfortable the first time you do it, but after that, it's enjoyable. But Brandon couldn't be swayed. There was no way he was ever going to have sex, get pregnant, give birth, forget it. It was bad enough having a monthly menstrual cycle. There may have been a time if he ever would have been able to have gender affirming hormone therapy that his menstruation would either be slowed or halted altogether. It would have been perfect for him to no longer have to deal with that. But unfortunately, Brandon would never have the chance to ever get there. Brandon took care of Sarah through her pregnancy and they did eventually find a trailer to rent and began living together. The things that the baby's daddy should have been doing, Brandon did them all. He prepared meals for Sarah. He made sure that she was always comfortable and rested. He went with her to her doctor's appointment. He drove her to school. Brandon really filled in the role of a boyfriend and a father that Sarah and the baby really needed. But just before Sarah's baby bump was obvious, she met a new guy named Drew Lyon. But Drew was trouble. He didn't finish high school. He had a pretty intense temper. And he was considered to be somewhat of a rebel who rejected authority, one of those types. He attributed his troubled life to being raised in a dysfunctional family which seems to be going around in this small town. Well, I mean, no judging. Everybody has a little bit of dysfunction here and there. But I mean, everybody in, these, in this setting, in this small town in Nebraska, everyone is having problems. And they seem to be similar. Everyone is having the same problems. Everyone has a single mom and an absentee dad and abuse in the family and sexual abuse and getting pregnant really young and everyone's moving out and living here and there and all over the place. It's just the way life is. It's like normal. It felt like it would be abnormal to be raised in a functional family with a mom and a dad and just a regular upbringing. By the time Drew was 16 years old, he had already been in trouble multiple times with the law and he basically just went around with this massive chip on his shoulder. What was his problem? He would say everything and everybody. Anything could set Drew off at any time. He had been arrested at least once for attacking his own sister, Chris. The charge was assault with an attempt to maim after he punched her in the head, rendering her unconscious. He was the only boy out of four children and he constantly fought with all of his sisters, with the three of them usually resorting to taking him on all at once, like ganging up on him. Drew would be the first to admit that the fights that he got into with his sisters 
could quickly escalate from throwing punches to pulling knives on one another. His sister Chris even admitted that one time she cracked Drew over the head with a wooden crutch and broke it into pieces. The fighting between siblings had gotten so bad that their parents tried seeking professional help, but to the four kids, it was pathetic and it didn't help at all. Drew described both of his parents as being there physically, but other than that, they really had no interest in wanting to have anything to do with the kids or being parents. Mom could care less about mothering. Dad could care less about fathering. He was usually holed up in his bedroom with his nose in a book. Their mom would try to force their dad to interact with them, but their dad was so overweight and lazy. The children all struggled to ever recall a time when they ever did anything fun with their parents. Drew remembered a time when he and his sisters had gotten into trouble and as punishment, they were locked in a bedroom for an entire evening until the next morning. And what made the whole thing even worse was the fact that they did not have access to the bathroom. By the time Drew got together with Sarah, who was already so damaged and so broken down by the abuse that he had suffered at home, he really didn't know any other way to be with Sarah. Drew had strong feelings for her. He even felt like he was in love, but emotionally, he was incapable of coping with being in this committed relationship. He, along with his sisters, had been physically abused. And compounding the problems, they had a babysitter that also sexually abused not one of them, but all of them. Well, I believe three out of four of them. And that included Drew. Their parents thought that the four of them were lying to get attention and that their motivation for reporting or telling about this abuse was to get their parents in trouble. And they did report the abuse and the children landed in foster care for a time, which for Drew was a relief to be away from that home, from his parents, from the abuse. As an adolescent and getting into his teen years, Drew resided in some group homes. He'd gone to therapy. He saw countless doctors and professionals, but none of it helped his anger to subside. He could just feel it in his bones to his core, just how the rage was this constant presence and this force inside him. Eventually, Drew was sent to Whitehall Residential Treatment Facility in Lincoln that was specifically for troubled youths. Drew finally had a breakthrough at Whitehall and worked for quite some time to develop into a more responsible young person. At the same time, he sort of came into his own, realizing that he was able to attract girls, lots of girls, which helped him with his self-esteem and his confidence. Drew eventually enrolled in the Job Corps so he could learn a trade and get his life back on track, which he was really wanting and determined to do. When Drew met Sarah, it was on Halloween of 1990. By the next day, they were having sex and were apparently crazy in love and or in lust. It got very intense, very fast. She wanted Brandon to meet Drew right away. And when Drew saw Brandon coming up to meet him, he was like, who's he? Sarah tried to quietly whispered, it's she. Now, Sarah claimed that Brandon overheard that exchange between herself and Drew 
and it caused Brandon to become very upset, claiming that Drew thinking that he was a guy made him upset. Sarah would say that Brandon didn't want anyone thinking that he was a guy and complained when people would tell him that she looked and dressed like a guy. But Sarah said that Brandon didn't dress like a guy, that he just dressed comfortably. Sarah claimed that everything Brandon wore, everything he purchased was from the women's department, that he never wore guys' clothes. And just because he has short hair and dressed in baggy jeans and t-shirts doesn't mean that he's trying to act like a dude. I don't necessarily believe that Brandon really felt that way. It sounds like Brandon would say to a close friend when he wasn't ready to explain that he was really identifying as a male or if he wasn't sure what was going on with him or how to explain it that he just had Sarah thinking that. Brandon seemed to know what he was feeling but may not exactly have been sure what it meant or how to convey it to others, especially to his close friends. If anything, Drew Lyon was pretty perceptive and picked up on the fact that Brandon was a guy. So for Brandon, I hope that that was a little bit validating. And I don't know if Brandon was realizing it or if he saw it at that moment, he might have that if someone is a stranger to him and someone doesn't really know him, that he can pass for a male, which is what he wanted. The people who knew Brandon and went to school with him and grew up with him, they knew that at birth he was, his gender was female. But people who didn't know him, their perception was that he was a guy. And that's what he wanted. So I read about Brandon and Sarah's friendship. They were best friends and there was never anything more between them. Sarah met Brandon as Tina and referred to him as Tina and by the gender that he was assigned at birth. They were able to talk about anything and Sarah was comfortable getting dressed and undressed and being naked in front of Brandon and it wasn't a big deal to either one of them. Brandon adored Sarah and always made her feel loved and to feel good about herself. Because of the way Sarah was raised with the abuse and the name-calling by her fanatically religious mother, Sarah was made to feel hideous and ugly her entire life. But it was Brandon who always told Sarah how beautiful that she was. He told her enough for Sarah to begin to believe that that was the truth and that it was her mom that was putting all of those false ideas into her head that she was ugly. Sarah wanted Brandon to feel good about himself too. And she tried to get him to embrace himself, who he was, to love his body. She thought maybe Brandon was kind of in the same boat as her in terms of feeling insecure about his looks and tried to hide under all those loose-fitting clothing. But she wanted Brandon to love himself and to love the skin that he was in. But it just wasn't going to be that simple for Brandon. No matter how many times she told him that he was beautiful or tried to bring out a sexier side of himself, he just wasn't about that. Though Brandon did let Sarah get him into a tight mini dress a couple of times, she did his hair, she put makeup on him and got him in some high heels, and Sarah thought Brandon looked really hot. 
The way that he was built was like a runway model because he was so thin and perfectly toned. Her boyfriend, Drew, even tried to arrange for them to go out on a double date with Brandon and one of his friends, but Brandon would not agree to go. He was 18 and he had yet to have ever gone out on an official date with anyone, male or female. Sarah would give birth to a son named Eric. But not too long afterwards, Brandon moved out of the trailer that they had shared. Sarah had found a not-so-great one-bedroom apartment, and Brandon had gone back to his mother's for the time being. Though Brandon and Sarah stayed close and would visit one another whenever they had the time, Brandon did start gravitating towards a new female friend, and her name was Heather Kafal. However, Brandon had introduced himself to Heather as Billy. So, what's the origin story of that name? Let me tell you. The phone rang one day where Brandon was living at his mom's house. This was towards the end of 1990. The call was from a girl named Liz Delano. She accidentally called the wrong number and it just so happened to be Brandon who answered. And when he did, Liz assumed that the person on the other end of the line was a guy And I believe she assumed that he was the guy that she was meaning to call. So she was chatty and friendly and being a bit of a flirt. So Brandon just kind of went along until Liz hung up. But then she called back right away. And when Brandon picked up, she asked Billy. Brandon, doing his best deep voice possible, said, yes. And she told him that she was just calling back because she wanted to know what his last name was. And he just seemingly pulled a name out of nowhere and said Brinson, Billy Brinson. She wanted to know how old Billy was, and he told her 18, which was true. Then she asked if he would be interested in meeting up sometime, and Brandon was like, yeah, sure, baby. And a minute or so later, when they got off the phone for the second time, (laughs) Brandon was quite amused with himself. Actually, he was pretty excited that he was able to talk and sound like a guy over the phone, that he was that convincing, and she didn't even question it. Getting by as a male was a thing Brandon had been longing for. So when it came to people who didn't know him from school or from work or from the neighborhood or the community he grew up in, when he would meet new people, they assumed he was a guy. So Liz and Brandon, posing as Billy, continued talking on the phone over the next few days and eventually they made a plan to hang out on New Year's Eve. Brandon wanted Sarah Andrew to go with him to meet with Liz on their first official meeting slash date, but he really didn't tell Sarah how the date all came about. He just wanted to try and play it off as being sort of a joke or a prank. And you know, Brandon was known for his pranks, so Drew and Sarah went along. I guess the joke may have been Brandon pretending to be a guy and taking this girl out on a date. And he said it was a joke just so he didn't have to explain to Sarah that he was really interested in girls. So the four of them met up for their date at a local skating rink. And Liz was pretty smitten with Brandon from the get-go. He was very sweet and very charming and not to mention very, very cute. Sarah just kind of looked on. She was observing and wondering but ultimately thought that it was great and kind of funny. But it didn't seem like that big of a deal to her. 
though she did think it was hilariously entertaining and she loved the fact that Brandon was masquerading as a guy. At least to her, that's what her perception was of what was going on here. She did not think that there was anything wrong. No harm, no foul. But Liz was only 13 years old. But Sarah knew that this was only going to go so far. Brandon wouldn't be having sex with her. They wouldn't be doing anything like that. So Sarah thought it was all right for them to hang out. Like I said, she thought it was pretty funny. And once again, things in this story moved along very quickly. Within six months, Brandon was living with Heather Kafal. She was a friend of Liz's and was introduced to Brandon as Billy Brinson. And she didn't know any different. So things aren't all that funny anymore. And Brandon's mom, Joanne, she was just beside herself, pissed off at what Brandon was doing, living with this young girl, because Heather was only 14. Joanne made several attempts to contact Heather to try and let her know, hey, you know, Billy isn't his real name. It's Tina, and Tina is her daughter. She is 18 years old, and what you all are doing is all wrong. Whatever it was that she thought Brandon and Heather were doing, it needed to stop. And she wanted to try and dissuade Heather from wanting to be with Brandon. But Heather refused to speak to Joanne, wouldn't talk to her, wouldn't accept her calls. Brandon told Heather to never mind his mom. She can't stand any of the girls that he goes out with. He cast his mom as a lunatic who drinks way too much and comes up with all of these outlandish stories about him being her daughter just to stir up problems. So while Brandon was dealing with this, his mom and Heather... Sarah and Drew hit a bit of a rough patch. She had broken up with him because someone told her that they saw Drew making out with another girl at some place where they regularly hang out in town. When Sarah asked Drew if the rumors were true, he was like, well, I wasn't making out, but she was giving me oral sex because that's somehow better, right? So when he fessed up to that, Sarah dumped him, but Drew wanted her back like something fierce. And one of the ways that he went about getting her back was to get in touch with Brandon because he knew that they were close, that they were best friends. And he was hoping that Brandon would be able to help him talk to Sarah and maybe she would listen to him. But when Drew called, Joanne told him that Brandon had moved out. But since Joanne had Drew on the phone, she started telling him what Brandon was doing, thinking that maybe Drew would be able to talk to Brandon about the things that he was getting himself into. Oh, I don't really think it was Joanne's place to be airing all of Brandon's business to people like this. I do understand that the bottom line for Joanne is that she's really worried for Brandon's safety. That if he's not being honest with people, if he's telling people that he is male, and if they find out that his gender that he was assigned at birth was actually female, that there was a strong possibility that Brandon was going to find himself in trouble and that he could possibly get hurt or worse. I'm not sure if Joanne was sharing that same concern just out with Drew, but as time progressed, Joanne did become increasingly worried for Brandon's safety. Joanne told Drew that Brandon was going around telling people that he was male, and she was unhappy about him going off to living with this family of this 14-year-old girl, Heather. She felt like it was a bad idea all around. And what exacerbated things even more for Joanne is that a couple of days prior to this conversation that she was having with Drew, she had the police knocking at her door with a criminal complaint that had been filed against her for disturbing the peace. 
get this, Brandon, Heather, and her mother, her name was Ruth Laudenschlager, the three of them went and filed a police report alleging Joanne was making harassing phone calls and they had saved several voice messages that she had left at their home. On the tape, Joanne issued threats, accused them of being lesbians, and she shared all of this with Drew as well, since she had him on the phone. She didn't know what else to do. Now that Brandon was 18, there was really little that she could do. Now that he was an adult, he seemed to want to have nothing to do with her. And the fact that he filed this police report, she just couldn't believe that he would do something like that to her. That this was the place that they were at with their relationship. That criminal complaint ultimately didn't go anywhere and was dropped a few days later, but still, Joanne was livid. She felt like Brandon was getting in over his head and she wasn't about to engage in this war with him. And she thought for a second that she had Drew as an ally in these battles that she was having because he did end up reaching out to Brandon and somehow he managed to wiggle his way into living with him, which surprised everybody. Drew went to go live with Brandon, Heather, and Ruth. And Joanne figured that he was there to keep an eye on Brandon for her. But, you know, a person like Drew is usually out for himself. What he was really trying to do was get buddy-buddy with Brandon as much as he could, hoping that that would help him in his quest to get back with Sarah. So Joanne, more desperate than ever, began going by the place where they all lived to see if she could catch Brandon there and to try to talk some sense into him. She wanted Brandon to get it through his thick skull that he can get into some serious trouble if he is being intimate with Heather. She is only 14 years old. She is jailbait. Branded could potentially be charged with statutory rape. Joanne wanted to put an end to this Billy Brinson nonsense before it ever got to that point. Eventually, Brandon ended up back living with Joanne. At least he was there a bit more frequently going into late winter of 1991. Heather had pretty much fallen head over heels for Brandon who she continued to only know by the name that he gave her, Billy. She just thought he was so cute. There was something about his look. He was very handsome with an amazingly sharp jawline that reminded her of being like a Kennedy. But he had this very slight and nuanced femininity about him that she just adored. She loved Brandon's thin frame and his close cropped hair. She gushed over him constantly to all of her friends. They were in the ninth grade, and Brandon was getting towards the end of his senior year. She was going to Lincoln High School, and he, of course, was still at Pius X. And Heather was so crazy about him that on Valentine's Day, she sent him a dozen roses at his school. For Brandon, it could have been kind of embarrassing, but... Luckily for him, he happened to be working in the office during that period, so he was the one who received the delivery. A couple of people in the office noticed that quote-unquote Billy got flowers, but they pretty much kept things to themselves. Surprising because my friends and I in high school were gossipy as fuck, but that's just me. The relationship between Brandon and Heather continued to blossom. They were pretty serious about one another. 
and Heather, while she was contacting Brandon by phone, occasionally at the home where he lived with Joanne, her calls grew more in both frequency and duration. Normally, Brandon would be there to get the phone, but sometimes when his mom would answer, she would deny that there was anyone there named Billy, which I guess was technically true, and then she would just slam down the phone on Heather. Joanne tried talking to Brandon about this, but he wouldn't even acknowledge Heather. He didn't know what this was all about. He didn't know what his mom was talking about. He didn't know who Billy was. He had no clue why someone would be calling like this. Brandon just played dumb. Joanne told him that whoever it was was calling and it sounded like she was a little bit too young. And Brandon kind of shrugged it off and was like, really? Wow, I don't know. Maybe they're just prank calling. While Drew lived with Brandon, Heather, and Ruth, he earned his keep by doing chores and handyman stuff around the house. The three of them, Drew, Brandon, and Heather, turned the basement into sort of a shared living space, using a curtain to divide up the room. Brandon and Heather slept on one side, Drew on the other. And when it came to Drew, he kind of thought there really wasn't any way that Heather didn't know that Brandon was transgender. She had to know because... They had gone down to the police department when they filed that complaint against Brandon's mom. He must have had to have provided his information at the time. And on paper, legally, he was still Tina Brandon. But Drew didn't really concern himself too much with it because he thought that they had a pretty decent relationship going on and it didn't bother Drew either way. So as much of a short-tempered asshole who thinks that there's nothing wrong with getting oral sex from someone other than his girlfriend, he is pretty forward-thinking in terms of his acceptance of Brandon and how he chooses to live his life. Not very many of these small-town folks in the story think or feel that way, especially some of the men in the story, as well as law enforcement and Brandon's own mother. But to Drew, it wasn't any of his concern, and it wasn't any of his business what those two did, and he really didn't care. He liked Brandon did not care. As far as Heather was concerned, Brandon was the best boyfriend ever. He was so sweet and he had this romantic side. They would go out on dates. He would give her gifts and flowers and he spent as much time with Heather as he possibly could and her family adored him too. And it wasn't really too long after Brandon had moved in with her family that he told her that he was going to change his name. He had no real explanation other that, that he wanted to, and Heather never questioned it. So from now on, he was no longer going to be Billy. He was going to be Brandon. For Heather, Brandon filled a void. He was sweet and attentive. He listened. He was compassionate. He seemed to understand and relate to her better than anyone. He was just there for her, and just his presence brought her so much comfort. And the more Brandon and Heather get to know one another, the more they realize that their upbringings kind of mirrored each other in several aspects. Neither one of them had a consistent father figure in their lives. They both lived in poverty in low-class neighborhoods. Their moms struggled putting food on the table and clothing on their backs. And both of them were living with the trauma of having been the victim of child sexual abuse. When it came to Brandon's identity and sexuality, it was neither here nor there for Heather. To her, he was a guy, and more importantly, he was her guy. 
He loved sports. He drank beers. He had plenty of guy friends. And I mean, you don't have to be a guy to love sports, beers, and guy friends. But that's how things stacked up for her. And that's all she needed to know. She loved Brandon's sense of humor. She loved how good he made her feel. He also wasn't afraid to show emotion, to cry, to be vulnerable. Being a tough guy like most other guys that she knew and was familiar with, that wasn't important to Brandon. And that was one of her favorite things about him. The first time she saw Brandon cry was about two days after they started seeing each other. And Heather told him that he couldn't be with both her and Liz and he really needed to make a choice. And that's when Brandon broke down into tears, which just shattered her heart. She never witnessed a man crying before. And just three months after they began seeing one another, Brandon gifted her a ring. Not exactly an engagement ring. That was a little bit too soon, and they both, frankly, were too young. But Brandon wanted it to be a symbol of their commitment, a thing that they promised to one another the day that he placed it on Heather's finger. Brandon made her feel so loved and so cared for. And on top of that, having sex was not a pressing issue for Brandon. And it was another thing that set him apart from the guys that Heather had known before him. They did share a bed, but they were not having sex. However, none of Heather's friends believed it. Brandon and Heather talked about the future, about having a family together. Brandon knew that he was never going to have biological children, and he shared his strong anti-abortion beliefs. Probably all that religious stuff pounded into his head at Catholic school. So he told Heather if she ever got pregnant that he would want to raise the child with her. I guess he's just assuming that if she got pregnant, the father would just automatically disappear. It was another promise that they had made to one another. They had talked about their own experiences being sexually abused. There were times that Heather would wake up in the middle of the night terrified of nightmares about being abused by a relative and how that a relative had raped her. Brandon confided that he feared being raped. And during the course of that conversation, Brandon told Heather that he was a hermaphrodite, but his mom raised him as female and he too had been sexually abused by a male relative. Heather halted the conversation for a moment to pause on this information about him being a hermaphrodite and having been raised as female. It seemed like she didn't quite understand what that meant and she wanted clarification. She asked Brandon, you used to be female? But she just didn't get it. Brandon quickly explained that he wasn't female and then he lied to her and told her that he had undergone some surgical procedures and that he was no longer female. It all just kind of went over her head and the conversation that they were having about their trauma was becoming a little bit too much for Brandon and he ended up going into another room. Heather could tell that Brandon's abuse had done a tremendous amount of damage. Heather didn't understand what being a hermaphrodite meant and she tried looking it up in some reference books at the local library but there wasn't all that much about it but she was able to find that it was a real thing, that an organism, animals, and humans can have both male and female sexual characteristics and organs. So this wasn't just something that Brandon was making up. And that's all that she really cared about. Brandon had told her that he had gender-affirming surgery and that he was male, 
So she didn't even bother researching the types of surgeries out there for cases such as the one Brandon had explained to her. But we all know that Brandon didn't have any gender-affirming surgery. It was a fib, and it was told to Heather in order to reassure her that he was male, thinking that if she were to know his actual assigned gender at birth was female, that she wouldn't want to be with him anymore. And of course, Brandon couldn't afford to have the surgery. And I mean, even now, today, while there are some medical insurances that may cover gender-affirming procedures, Many don't, or they will deny the claim. And as of now, insurances aren't required to cover those procedures, but considering this was way back in 1991, we can be fairly certain that getting that done and covered by your medical insurance would not be happening. But anyway, Heather was content with the information that she found, and it was enough for her to want to stick by Brandon. As far as she was concerned, he was a guy, he was her guy, and they would end up being together for nearly two years. They never had sex, but he did please her sexually. Brandon would go on to propose to Heather, and she readily accepted. They talked about the wedding and making preparations and where they would go on their honeymoon, and Heather talked to Brandon about finally consummating their relationship after marriage. Brandon talked about waiting for the right time and the right moment, for it to just be perfect. But Heather explained that once they were married, they were free to do whatever they wanted to do. Brandon again tried to deflect away from the subject of sex, telling her that they needed to factor in the sexual abuse that they both had experienced and how that they needed to really know that they were ready to make that next step. Heather was certain that she was ready. In fact, there came an evening when she told Brandon that she was ready to have sex with him that night but he insisted that they wait until after they got married, and Heather agreed. Just to make sure that they didn't have any accidents, Heather went ahead and had her doctor prescribe her some birth control pills. And Heather getting on the pill had convinced her friends even more so that she and Brandon were sexually active, though she continued to insist that they weren't. They were together, they were planning a future, and when the time comes, they will have sex. But at that time, they were not. And Brandon did more than enough to make Heather feel loved and cared for without having to go all the way. He was loving and romantic and gentle and kind. He was comforting and reassuring. <sighs> Just makes you wish you could have your own Brandon in your life, right? Uh, I have Fred, so there's that. Whatever Heather may have been missing out on not having sex with Brandon, he was making up for it in every other way possible. And she was more than good with that. Heather didn't think that there was another guy out there that could be as loving and patient and understanding as Brandon, and at the same time, not always pressuring her for sex. Guys out there just weren't anything like Brandon. Not a one. And for now... Heather was fine knowing what she knew about Brandon, what he was willing to tell her. She did wonder about him really having the gender-affirming surgery and whether or not he really had a penis, but she would have to feel it to know. She did come to find that Brandon did have socks stuffed in his pants, which kind of confused her, but she never wanted to just reach out and grab him. She would have never done that. 
And to me, it just kind of sounds like she maybe didn't really want to know. She loved him and probably felt she was better off just being kept in the dark. Brandon and Heather never showered together. He never got naked in front of her. He made a habit of draping a towel around his neck so that it covered his chest, so she never saw that either. Whenever they went swimming, Brandon didn't just wear one t-shirt, he wore two. Looking back, Heather gets it. But then, at the time as this was happening, she wondered, but she never questioned. She didn't really want to question him. She loved him. Brandon's mom and sister, Joanne and Tammy, they began wondering about this quote-unquote problem that they were having with Brandon. Tammy was frequently losing pairs of socks, and she did notice that Brandon started having this bulge in his pants. But neither one of them wanted to question Brandon about it. Joanne felt as if Brandon was icing her out, but she really wanted him to open up with her on his own and be honest. She knew Brandon had a couple of serious relationships and both of them were with girls, Tracy and then Heather. So she suspected that Brandon was a lesbian. Whenever Heather saw Joanne, which was rare, Joanne would refer to Brandon as her daughter and it made Heather cringe. Joanne would sometimes question Heather and ask her if she realized that she was being with the female. And all Heather would say is, I get it. Brandon had told her that his mom would never accept him as a male and that his mother felt like this whole thing was like a big joke. Joanne just could not wrap her head around the relationship that Brandon had with Heather. She just didn't get it. They insisted that they slept in separate rooms, but Joanne knew that that was a lie. It also worried Joanne that Heather's mom was rarely home and that Brandon and Heather were usually up to no good, hosting house parties with underage drinking. Joanne tried to get Heather's mom, Ruth, to side with her, but Ruth wouldn't have it. In fact, Ruth was downright rude every time Joanne tried to talk to her about getting through to their kids. Joanne would tell her, My kid is female. My kid is 18 years old. My kid should not be over at your house drinking or doing whatever it is teenagers do. But Ruth pretty much blew Joanne off and she told her, Brandon is a guy. My daughter is not a lesbian. Brandon is a male. And this just had Joanne spinning just beside herself. How is this person that doesn't even know her get off on telling her the gender of the child that she gave birth to? Joanne reached a point where she just couldn't take being lied to by her child anymore. So she finally just threw the question out there, asking Brandon if he was a lesbian. Brandon insisted that he wasn't, but she continued to press him. It's okay if that was the case. All she wanted was the truth and for him to stop lying to her. But Brandon continued to insist that he was not a lesbian, but she continued to pressure him for the truth. She expressed her concerns and worries about him going around and being dishonest with people, including her, and she needed to know. But Brandon remained emphatic. He was not a lesbian. Ironically, as Joanne was sitting there pressuring Brandon so hard for the truth, he was, in fact, telling her the truth because he was not a lesbian. Joanne continued with the conversation despite Brandon's repeated denials. She began pointing out his look, the way that he dressed, the way that he carried himself, 
the way that he cut his hair, how it was always short like a crew cut. All these things that he did to make himself look like a male. Brandon just sat there and stayed quiet. Eventually, she would drop the subject. She wasn't getting any answers. Instead, Joanne continued her campaign to try and prove to Heather and to her mother that Brandon was female. She sent some friends over to pay Heather and Ruth a visit. And with them, they had childhood photos of Brandon with long hair, with dresses on. She even sent along Brandon's actual birth certificate. But the two of them refused to look at any of those items. They refused to listen to anything Joanne had to say. Joanne had even gone over there herself, determined to get through to these people. And it was a move that just horrified Brandon. Joanne insisted that they needed to talk this out. They needed to work through this, but Brandon kept insisting to his mom that he was not a lesbian. And he even told his mom, look, you're offending me because you keep on asking me and bringing this up and accusing him of being gay when he's not gay. While Joanne continued to struggle with getting to the truth and the heart of the matter, Brandon went on a tear destroying any and every photo that his mom had of him when he was a child, everyone that he could find. And he wanted to make it as though Tina Brandon never was. Because if he was never Tina Brandon, then there could only be Brandon Tina. The pressure that his mom was putting him under caused Brandon to want to be as real as he could be as Brandon. He started shaving and he began using the men's restroom whenever he was out and about. Brandon worked on deepening the tone of his voice when he talked. And really, the more Brandon worked on his look, the more the ladies were attracted to him. Joanne eventually had an emotional breakdown over Brandon's gender identity. She was just as confused as Brandon had been. But she wasn't about to acknowledge or affirm or validate him for who he was trying to be. She insisted. She stood her ground. She would not change her mind. He was her daughter. End of discussion. Brandon carried on with his relationship with Heather. And he also began spoiling her. And it was kind of excessively. And he basically over time replaced Heather's entire wardrobe. All of her clothing was old and faded and tattered. And before long, everything in Heather's closet was brand new, courtesy of Brandon. Brandon's best friend, Sarah, wasn't too keen on that, thinking that Heather was taking of Brandon's kindness and generosity. Sarah was also confused as to where Brandon was getting all of this money from. She knew that the part-time jobs that Brandon had were very low paying. In 1990, minimum wage in Nebraska was $325. And the next year, it bumped up to four twenty-five, and I remember earning four twenty-five an hour. That's the lowest minimum wage that I ever earned. Sarah also knew that Brandon had acquired a fake ID so that he could apply for jobs as Brandon instead of his legal name, Tina. In fact, there were times when Brandon resorted to panhandling. That's how little money that he was making. He was telling passersby that he was having car troubles and. It actually turned out to be quite lucrative at times, but it still didn't seem like that would be enough to buy all of the things that he was getting for Heather. Though Heather did notice that there were times when they would be shopping at the department store or something, 
and then Brandon would excuse himself to go to the restroom, and then the next thing she knew, he would have a small gift for her, sometimes even jewelry. And really all Heather had to do was say that she wanted something, and boom, Brandon would get it for her. At the same time, there was a side of Brandon that Heather really didn't care for, and it was the fact that he was so flirtatious with other girls, even with her own friends sometimes. And whenever anyone saw Brandon flirting or kissing with other girls, they would run and tell Heather all about it. She also knew that Brandon had an affinity for watching explicit adult movies, and he expressed an interest in having sex with more than one woman at a time. And Heather was not about that at all. She wanted Brandon all to herself, and him watching these women in these adult films bothered her immensely. He was way into it, and she didn't like it. But whenever she started to get mad, all Brandon had to do was just love on her, and he would look at her with his goofy grin, and all of her hang-ups would melt away. He had a way with her that she just couldn't ever stay angry at him about anything. Sometimes, if she got mad and she started yelling, he would sit there and look at her, and then he would just burst into laughter, and she couldn't help but join him. And the fact was, Brandon was into one of Heather's friends in particular, and her name was Monica, and Heather had caught them making out a few times. But Brandon would just brush it off, telling Heather that they were just playing around. Eventually, Heather didn't let it bother her. Monica wasn't into guys like Brandon. She had a certain type, and Brandon was not it. So she sort of just let it go, and the three of them would regularly hang out. Meanwhile, Brandon's old BFF Sarah and her on-again, off-again boyfriend Drew were back on again by the beginning of 1992, and they credited Brandon in helping to facilitate their reunion. They rented a small place together that was pretty close to where Brandon, Heather, and Heather's mom lived, so they hung out a lot, like they used to. And, you know, because they were much more present in Brandon's day-to-day -day life, and Sarah and Drew felt like they owed Brandon the world for helping them to get back together, that they were suddenly in this position where they needed to stand by Brandon. Not only did they not reveal Brandon's assigned gender when he was born was female to people, but they were standing up for him when people had doubts. They went along with the lies that he was telling about having gone through gender reassignment surgery, and they only referred to him as Brandon, he and him. But there was this handful of local guys, several of them were Drew's buddies, and they weren't buying it. They could tell that Brandon wasn't a guy and openly mocked and demeaned him for trying to act like one. Believing him to be a lesbian, they called him whatever derogatory names that came to mind. They didn't like that Brandon was going around lying about being a guy, and they often talked about kicking his ass. Like, who does he think he is? How is it that he thinks that we're that dumb to not know that he's just a dyke? And if he really wanted to parade around and act like a man, then they would want to treat him like a man and give him a beatdown like a man. And if he really wanted dick like a man... They would give him that too. Brandon was making the rounds as the subject of the small town gossip, but it wasn't just about him being transgender or rumors that he was a lesbian. 
nor was it about him being intimate with a girl four years younger than him. The thing that people were mostly talking about was Brandon having this reputation for being a thief. He was stealing money from people and word was getting around that you needed to watch your pocketbook and your checkbook if Brandon was ever around you. At first, like several other things that Brandon did, he passed off what he was doing as just another joke. The first time that he was known to have stolen from someone was a time that he stole somebody's checkbook and forged a number of checks but framed it as a prank that he was pulling on the guy who was the account holder. He took the checks and went on these mini shopping sprees, buying himself some clothes and shoes and cassette tapes. Heather was with him when he was doing it, but when Brandon got busted, she got busted right along with him, but she claimed that she had no idea that there was anything illegal going on with the checks that Brandon was writing. And when Brandon started off doing this, Sarah said that it was just small, petty amounts of money, no more than $10 here, $15 there. But considering minimum wage was only $4.25, 15 bucks is nearly a half a day's work, after taxes. And Brandon, he kind of got off on getting away with writing these checks everywhere. He got a rush off of it. And really, it wasn't as much of a prank as Brandon first led his friends to believe. Because things got real when he decided to steal his girlfriend's mom's checkbook and her debit card. So yeah, he snuck into Ruth's wallet and stole things from her and began taking money out of her accounts and forging more checks. Sarah had found out that Brandon had stolen those items from Ruth, so when she confronted him about it, he admitted, yeah, he did take her checks and her credit card. Sarah then asked him what he had spent all the money on, and Brandon said it was all things for either Ruth or Heather, or for the both of them, he would buy food for everyone or gas for Ruth's car or clothing for Heather. Ruth never bought anything for her daughter. She never bought food for the house. So Brandon took it upon himself to get the things that they all needed and all of it was for the household. But Sarah told him that's fine and all, but you can't go about it by using the checkbook and the bank card without the account holder's permission. But Brandon stood by his decision. Everything he did, he was doing for Heather he couldn't let Ruth continue to neglect his girlfriend anymore. At least, that's how Brandon saw things. He wanted to do what was best for Heather or what he thought was best for her, even if it meant stealing from Heather's mom. Sarah said, fine. If he had a valid reason for doing what he was doing, then so be it. But she wanted to know if he was taking large sums of money from Ruth's account. Because Brandon insisted that it was only a few dollars here and there, barely enough for them to scrape by. But Sarah told Brandon that she was hearing that it was far more serious than just a few bucks. Brandon demanded to know where she was getting this information from, and she told Brandon that Heather was the one who gave her the details, and that Heather also told her that her mom was planning on filing a criminal complaint against him. But Brandon wasn't too worried about it at first, because he claimed that Heather was in on it with him, that she was helping him and she knew about it and she was okay with it and didn't think that Ruth would go and have her daughter arrested and charged. And in a way, Brandon was right. She wouldn't have her daughter arrested for forging the checks because when Ruth began noticing checks were being written against her account that she not only didn't write, but they were also bouncing, she filed a police report naming only Brandon 
as the forger. Brandon was not arrested when authorities approached him and he was eating dinner at a local Italian restaurant on October 17, 1991, but instead they issued two citations for second-degree forgery. Count one was for the charge involving Ruth's checking account, which ended up being dropped, but the second count involved a check written on an account owned by Brad Tullis in the amount of $154.38. That charge looked as if it was going to stick, and Brandon was going to have to face up to it in court. It would be the first time that he would actually be made to face the music. And this charge of forgery involving a check in the amount of $154.38 was actually the third time that Brandon had found himself in trouble with the law. Seven months earlier, in March of 91, Brandon was charged with being in possession of stolen property. He was ordered to pay a fine totaling $500, but ended up serving three days in the county jail instead since he didn't have the money and most likely wouldn't any time in the near future. The second incident occurred four months later in July of 1991 when he was charged for the first time with secondary forgery for writing a bad check under $75. The charges were pending for a while, but eventually it was dropped. But for this third incident in October, it was looking like Brandon wasn't going to be as lucky and the court appointed Scott Helvey to represent Brandon. And making matters worse, this third time around, Brandon had received some mail that Joanne had picked up from the mailbox and saw that the sender was the county's public defender's office. So Joanne started peppering Brandon with questions, wanting to know what the hell was going on. Brandon explained that he was being charged with forgery, but insisted that Ruth had given him permission to write those checks. But still, Joanne was upset that Brandon was getting in trouble with the law. This was way out of character for him. And Joanne had even gone with Brandon to his court dates, but she still wasn't getting any straight answers from him. He had entered a plea of not guilty, and Brandon seemed mostly wanting to just to try to avoid the topic. He really had no explanations for what he had done. He wouldn't tell Joanne anything, but from what she could tell, the county attorney seemed to have a solid case against him. At the same time, Joanne was sort of at the end of her rope with Brandon, and she really couldn't take much more, and she just as soon dropped the whole thing and just let Brandon deal with it however which way he was going to deal with it. She knew that Brandon was struggling mentally and emotionally and really didn't want to add any further pressure or burden on him. And it was also around this time that Joanne's mother had succumbed to cancer. And she had clung to life for quite some time while she was being kept heavily medicated in order to keep her comfortable in the final weeks and days of her life. Joanne had been deeply impacted by her mother's death for quite some time, and she hardly paid any attention to anything, much less Brandon's legal troubles. One of the things that seems to have been skipped over in Brandon's timeline and one of the main sources that I used for this case, which is Aphrodite Jones's book, All She Slash He Wanted, was the fact that Brandon did not graduate from Pius X High School. He had done really well throughout school, but as his senior year progressed, he began not showing up for classes and his grades plummeted. And just two days before graduation, Brandon was expelled. He would not be getting his high school diploma. He would not be walking with his friends at commencement that June of 91. Brandon's graduation would have fallen right between the first criminal charges in March 
and the second case in July. Then the third charges came along three months later in October of 91. So this was a rough stretch of time. The case that Brandon caught in October would take nearly six months to make its way through the court system. And on March 6, 1992, Brandon was convicted of forgery in the second degree. He was given 18 months of probation, no jail time. He would be required to report to his PO in writing and in person. He was prohibited from possession and consumption of alcohol. He was required to earn his GED within the next 12 months. And he was ordered to attend counseling sessions at the local mental health care facility until it was decided that he no longer needed to go. In the six months between Brandon being charged with forging checks on Heather's mom's account to the time that he was finally sentenced, his relationship with Heather had fallen apart. Brandon tried working at picking up the pieces and trying to work things out with Heather, but at the time, the damage seemed irrevocable. By the beginning of 1992, Brandon was no longer living with Heather and Ruth, and he had told his mom that he was sharing a trailer with some of his guy friends. Brandon sent several letters to Heather, profusely apologizing for everything that he did, insisting that he hadn't changed. The love that he had for her was still there. Their love for one another was strong and worth holding on to. He insisted that they needed each other. They needed to be there for one another. And in one of his letters, Brandon wrote, I'm still the same person that you love, but there is one huge difference and everything will change. Joanne's fears and worries intensified. She was desperate to get through to Brandon, insisting that she wanted her daughter back. She reached out to Brandon's longtime best friend, Sarah, but she felt the same way. She wanted her best friend back just as badly. Joanne asked Sarah if there was anything that she could think of that she could do to try and get through to Brandon, but Sarah didn't know. She had no idea what to do. Joanne suggested that maybe she could go speak to Heather. Heather had grown to despise Brandon's mom and wanted nothing to do with her, so Joanne couldn't exactly go over there herself. Brandon was so mortified that Joanne had even tried going over there while he was living there at the time with Heather and Ruth, and it made her so angry that she had done that, that Joanne felt like Brandon hated her. He wouldn't talk to his mom, he wouldn't open up to her, he wouldn't be honest with her about anything, so Joanne had hoped that maybe Sarah would have better luck. Sarah wanted to try and help because she was really afraid for Brandon. She was afraid all of this was taking a toll on Brandon mentally and physically. And it was only going to get worse if something wasn't done to get him some help. Joanne urged Sarah to try and talk to Heather. They knew that Heather was a person that Brandon cared for deeply. Maybe she would be the one that would be able to get through to him. But the fact was Brandon just wasn't himself anymore. And Joanne and Sarah were growing more concerned with each passing day. And they really feared for his safety. He was living with a group of guys who believed that Brandon was just a regular guy like they were, with no idea that he was transgender. But what if they somehow figured it out? And if they were to discover the truth that he was trans and they became angry at the perceived deception or felt like they'd been lied to, they might actually do something to harm Brandon. And this was a constant fear for Joanne, for somebody to physically harm her child or even worse. They wanted to get to him, 
to get him to figure out his life, to help him, to confront him about what he's doing and how he was living and to try to get him to see the dangers when it comes to the reality of who he is. While at the same time, all of them were wanting to try to navigate through the confusion of whatever, whoever Brandon was, Joanne thought that she could just get him the right help, that they could begin to work through this, and she was prepared to force Brandon into seeking professional help, whether he wanted it or not. But both Joanne and Sarah were working from the belief that the things Brandon was doing, the way that he was trying to, quote, pass himself off as a male, was a thing perpetuated by the fact that they believed Heather was the one who was gay, that she was this closeted lesbian who had to know that Brandon's gender assigned at birth was female and that she was the one who had the most significant influence over Brandon to go around masquerading as a male and that she pressured him to do so. She wanted him to be more masculine so that she would be able to continue to hide the fact from her friends and family that she was gay. While that may have been the easiest way for Joanne to cope with Brandon's gender identity, she did take into consideration that Heather was four years younger than Brandon, and perhaps she just didn't know any better. Joanne and Sarah continued to discuss the matter as if there was something or someone that needed to take the blame for all of this, when the simple answer was Brandon was a transgender man and that was that. Nobody influenced him. Nobody talked him into being trans. Heather didn't pressure him into being something that he wasn't. Brandon was just Brandon, but Joanne and Sarah weren't seeing it that way. They had this need to assign blame. So the easiest person was Heather. Sarah wasn't really buying the notion that Heather didn't know any better or that she was just young and naive. Sarah believed that Heather if she knew the truth, was either in serious denial about it, that Heather knew the truth, that she figured it out, but it was still something she didn't want to let go of, she wanted to be with Brandon and knew what she was getting herself into, or Heather was under the impression that Brandon had either had or was going to have gender reassignment surgery. Sarah believed that Heather loved him, she wanted him, and she wanted to be with him no matter what. There were other things going on with Brandon that concerned both Sarah and Joanne. They noticed that Brandon's weight had been dropping. He was already thin, but now he was barely eating, and soon he was close to 100 pounds or 45 kilograms. Brandon was also exhibiting what seemed to be some sort of compulsive type behavior, things like taking a half a dozen showers in one day and changing his clothes just as many times as he showered. It was perplexing. Sarah and Joanne just didn't understand and they continued to become more and more desperate to get Brandon help. Sarah knew Brandon was in love with Heather and she never wanted to do anything to hurt Brandon or to cause him any more problems. But Sarah was also taking into consideration the damage that Brandon was doing to his much younger impressionable girlfriend. Then one day Brandon and Heather got into a huge argument. Brandon sought Sarah out, wanting to talk to her, tearfully confiding in her, finally telling Sarah that he thinks that he might be gay. But he doesn't really feel like that's what's going on because he is attracted to women and he wants to be with women, but inside he feels like a man, a man attracted to women. 
He felt like he was just born in the wrong body. Sarah, ever comforting and loyal to Brandon, told him, that's okay. And she was okay with whatever it is Brandon thinks or feels. It didn't matter to Sarah. Brandon continued to try and sort through what he was feeling, explaining that gay isn't what this was, that he was a man underneath it all, and he expressed his confusion and that he was unsure as to what to do. And he also told Sarah about his fears, that he was afraid that she was going to hate him if she knew the truth. But Sarah assured Brandon that it didn't matter. Just know that it didn't matter. They would always be best friends. If this is what feels right, she told him, if this is what feels natural, then by God, she's standing by him and she supported him in whatever he wanted, whatever he felt was authentic, however he wanted to live his life. But what Sarah did tell him that concerned her was that she didn't want him to cause Heather or any other young girl that he might become involved with to end up hurt. They don't deserve to be lied to or deceived. But that's all Sarah said. She just didn't want Brandon going around hurting people while searching for his own truth and his own identity. It was also during this talk that Brandon admitted that he and Heather weren't just friends. It was the first time that he had openly said this to Sarah and that they had a romantic relationship, but Sarah knew that already. However, it was a big step for Brandon to actually come out and say it. It had been one of Brandon's biggest fears that opening up to Sarah about his relationship with Heather would cause Sarah to turn on him and their friendship. A little while into the conversation, Sarah began suggesting the possibility of Brandon not just talking about the gender reassignment surgery, but to actually consider it if he thought that that might be a solution for him. But Brandon, even though he had talked about it and he had even said he had already had it done, it didn't sound like it was something that Brandon really took into actual consideration. Brandon continued to be in a confused state about it and he just wasn't sure. And even if he did want to, he didn't think that he would be able to afford it. But Sarah said, well, at least he could try and get more information about the surgery to see what his options might be in order to help him be his best self, to be the self that he is most comfortable and confident being. And Brandon then wondered, what if this is just some sort of weird phase? What if he's mistaken? What if he goes and has this gender-affirming surgery, but it turns out that's not what he wanted? And then he would have to live with all of this regret because now he's stuck and can't turn back time and undo what he had done. As always, Sarah was able to comfort Brandon, and she reassured him that she would be there to help him figure things out. But for the time being, Sarah would stick by Brandon and stick with him. She wouldn't tell anybody anything that Brandon had told her. She would begin calling him Brandon instead of Tina, and she would stand up and defend Brandon whenever anybody came around questioning or taunting him about his gender identity or his sexuality. Among the things Brandon was working on was sorting out his living situation. By early 1992, he was living with a new roommate named Kendall Hawthorne, who Brandon met through Sarah's boyfriend, Drew. 
but there was a problem. For whatever reason, Kendall insisted that Brandon produce his identification. Otherwise, Kendall was going to kick him out of the house. And Drew, he was kind of stuck in the middle between the two of them, with Kendall demanding to know what was up with Brandon. Kendall wasn't sure what to make of him. And Drew told him, dude, just whatever you want to think, just think it. It's up to you to figure out on your own. And if you want to know, just go and ask Brandon yourself. Drew didn't want Brandon to get kicked out because he knew he was running out of places to stay. And really, the worst he thought Kendall's reaction would be, would be to make fun of Brandon, to make a joke out of the whole thing. In the meantime, Sarah managed to get in touch with Heather, and this would be towards the end of January of 1992. They just happened to run into each other at a nearby McDonald's. Sarah told Heather that she really wanted to sit and talk, to which Heather agreed and they ended up going back to Heather's place. When they got there, Sarah really wanted her to try and just relax and be calm while she said what she needed to say. But Heather was pretty restless and just really wanted to hear, just say it. So finally, Sarah said, Brandon isn't really Brandon. Confused, Heather was like, what do you mean he's not Brandon? And Sarah said, he's Tina. And Heather replied, well, yeah, I know. But Sarah didn't think Heather was quite picking up what she was putting down. His name is Tina. Like you're named Heather. I'm named Sarah. He's named Tina. He is she, and she is one of us. She's got breasts. She menstruates once a month. And as all of this came pouring out of Sarah, Heather was silent jaw-dropped and dumbfounded. Within a few minutes, Brandon came bounding through the door, and it was purely coincidental. He wanted to stop by to see Heather, so Sarah quietly whispered to Heather to not say anything just yet, and the two of them told Brandon they, they were going to get some food from Arby's and that they would be right back. The truth was, Arby's was the closest place that Sarah could think of off the top of her head that was close to Joanne's house, which is where Sarah was intending to take Heather. They told Brandon that they would bring him something back, so he stayed at Heather's house and waited. Sarah brought Heather to talk to Joanne. Reluctantly, Heather went. When they sat down, the three of them, to talk, Joanne brought out family photo albums to share with Heather. She had albums full of pictures of Brandon as a child with his sister, the two of them, with long hair, wearing girls' clothes, One of Brandon's class pictures from Catholic school really stood out to Heather. He had on this beautiful lacy white dress with a big, huge white bow in his hair. Joanne also showed Heather Brandon's birth certificate. In the box that listed sex, the word female was typed in. Heather had become visibly irritated by all of this, and she was becoming upset at what she felt was a massive betrayal on Brandon's part. Sarah tried her best to keep Heather calm, to keep her from freaking out too much. The ride back to Heather's place was pretty quiet, and they did not stop at Arby's. All the blood had drained from Heather's face. It was as if she had just seen a ghost. As soon as Heather walked through the front door of her home and she saw Brandon there waiting for her still, she immediately fell apart, bursting into tears, crying uncontrollably. Brandon got down on the ground, down on his knees, and begged Heather to please allow him to explain, please listen to him. He tried telling her that he didn't know how deep their relationship would go, 
and that he had fallen in love with her, and by the time all that happened, he just didn't know how to tell her. As Brandon struggled to find the right things to say in the moment, he was also in tears. He said that he tried in various ways. He tried to tell her, but he didn't think it was registering. He didn't think that she was hearing what he was saying. But in this moment, Heather just wasn't having it. She was becoming hysterical, demanding that Brandon get out of her house. But when he wouldn't leave, she called police. She was literally wailing into the phone, crying and screaming. But by the time the police got to the house, the out-of-control emotions had settled. And Heather ended up telling the police that everything was all right. So they left. A few hours following that confrontation with Heather, Brandon had been back at home where he lived with Kendall. Sarah and Drew went back to their place, which was close by to where Brandon was. Later that evening, Joanne received a frantic call from Sarah. Brandon had just consumed an entire prescription bottle of antibiotics. By the time help arrived, Heather and Sarah were anxiously waiting outside of Kendall's home, terrified that Brandon wasn't going to make it. He needed to get to the hospital fast. Okay, my dreamers, I am going to pause the story here. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to listen to these episodes, The Tale of Brandon Tina in recognition of Pride Month. Please join the Facebook discussion group. I'm really working on my social media presence to make sure that I post more across all the places where you can follow California Dreaming on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. I'm also on TikTok. I mostly post about the dogs but I do try to remember to post about new episodes of the show. Also, if you're feeling generous or lonely and want more of me in your ears, go over to our Patreon page, scroll around and see if anything worthwhile catches your eye, and get access to it starting at $1 a month. Every patron gets at least one exclusive bonus per month, whether you donate $1 or $100. Stay tuned for the next part of this series. It will be coming out shortly. We will pick it up from where we left off. I want to again thank you so much for listening. I love you all. Be safe. Stay cool. Summer is coming. And until next time, sweet dreams and love one another.